0: Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. This is the parallel passage to our text in John's gospel, John chapter 6, where John records the same uh, incident, Jesus walking on the water. So you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I preached about the Lord Jesus multiplying bread and fish in the wilderness for the 5,000 people and then 5,000 men plus women and children. Mark does the same. If you look at chapter 6, verse 30 to 44, he records the same feeding of the 5,000. And then we're going to pick it up at verse 45. Our text for the sermon this morning comes from John 6. Last time we dealt with the Lord's multiplication of the bread and the fish. And now what happens next? We'll start at verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they, and that's the crowd, the thousands of people, They were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That's as far as our text is or will be saints of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how you look at our text, it is rather fascinating, isn't it? Jesus walking on water. Mark records this as we read, so does Matthew. Matthew adds that Peter also walked on water on this occasion at Jesus' invitation And that, too, is fascinating. I mean, who wouldn't want to walk on water? Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus got into the boat with the disciples, the winds and the waves died down. Everything became quiet, and the disciples were astounded. On so many levels, this is extraordinary. So, it's a fascinating miracle What is the point of this fascinating miracle, do you think? Is the application that we can expect Jesus to help us out in the storms of life? Should we expect Jesus to do miraculous things to help us in our troubles? Is that why this passage is put in the Bible? Well, We know from elsewhere in Scripture that our Lord certainly does go with us everywhere and that He, in fact, leads us everywhere, including in the dark places such as the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23, we know that and the help that the lord provides is very real it's very tangible and sometimes he amazes us with an unexpected astounding turn of events all of that is true and yet brothers and sisters that is not the point of our text in john 6 jesus didn't walk on the water to rescue his disciples he went out there to reveal something to them. Away from the crowds, in the dark of night, in the middle of the lake, he lets them see who he really is, the true king of Israel. And so I bring you this word of the Lord. Jesus shows himself to be Israel's true king. We'll see that he exercises total control and total care. When you read our text and learn about a storm on the Sea of Galilee, you might naturally assume that the disciples were in danger. You might even wonder whether this, is, this particular storm is the same storm that Jesus instantly calmed down by rebuking the wind and the waves. That's a, an account that we learn in the other Gospels. Maybe John left out those particular details about the rebuking of the wind and the, and the waves, but could this be the same incident? But when you check out the other Gospels, you quickly realize that they record two separate incidents involving a storm on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples in a boat. The first time was when Jesus was with them after a long day of preaching They got into the boat to cross the lake. He fell asleep in the stern, and the storm was so fierce, we read on those occasions, that they all thought, the disciples all thought they were going to drown. That was danger. That was the time they had to wake up Jesus, who then stood up in the boat to command the wind and the waves to stop, and they did. But our text is different. Our text and its parallels, which we read in, in Mark 6, and you can find the other one in Matthew 14, they record this second storm on this same lake, only this time Jesus was not in the boat. And notice that this time there is no imminent danger. The boat was not going to capsize. We don't read that in any of the accounts. All that it says in each of the three accounts is that the sea was rough The wind was strong. The disciples were having a really tough go, rowing against the waves. So making progress was painfully slow and unpleasant, but they were making progress. And there was no threat to their lives. In fact, the only time the disciples are said to be afraid is when they actually see Jesus. Then they become afraid. Before that, they were just tired and maybe frustrated. So, Jesus could have left them in the boat, and given a few more hours, they would have reached the shore. So, why did Jesus choose to do this miracle at this moment? Well, John gives us a hint in verse 15 of our text When he says, perceiving then that they, that's the crowd, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. John is the only writer to tell us that little fact, and it helps explain why Jesus would, as, as Mark relates, send his disciples away immediately after the crowds were fed bread and fish. And that action of Jesus sending the disciples away from Himself was unusual. When you read through the Gospels, their disciples are mostly with Jesus, or they leave Him for a very short period of time, maybe to go into a city to buy bread or other food. But they're always coming back to Jesus fairly quickly. But this time, Jesus sends them away across the lake mark tells us that jesus made his disciples get into the boat so there's a a certain compelling he has to do to go ahead of him to the other side of the lake to bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd he makes them leave the disciples then would have found this very unusual They're, they're going to be sent seven or eight kilometers away across the lake and jesus stays with the crowd or at least on that side of the lake why why does Jesus separate the disciples from Himself and the crowd? Well, in part, it's because Jesus didn't want the crowd to influence the disciples any more than they already may have. Because verse 15 tells us that the thousands of people, and remember there's 5,000 men and then women and children, we're dealing with maybe 15 or so thousand people. People. They were deeply impressed with Jesus and his power to produce bread in the wilderness, just like Moses, like it happened in the days of Moses. They say about him, that's in verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So they're getting excited, the crowd. This is the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18. This is the greater Moses that we were expecting, this is the Messiah. So let's crown him king. Let's make this thing happen. Let's bring in the kingdom. This is the king. If this man can produce bread and fish out of thin air and heal the sick with a simple command or touch, then surely he can lead us against our enemies, against the Romans, and take back our country. That's the kind of king the crowds were looking for that's the kind of king they thought they had there in jesus and when this this group think takes hold of a big crowd like that it's very hard for individuals to resist so jesus commands the 12 to get into a boat to to leave that crowd and its influence and to go ahead of him across the lake to capernaum while he goes back up the mountain to pray The people of Israel wanted to make Jesus their king. Let's just think about that for a moment. If you were in Jesus' shoes, how much of a temptation would that be for you? And how much of a temptation would it be for those disciples? For the disciples, having Jesus crowned king would have been a dream come true. Remember it was Nathanael earlier in John's Gospel chapter 1 verse 49 he had openly confessed that Jesus was Israel's king. And that king had shortly gone on to provide wine out of out of water at a wedding feast to indicate that the kingdom of God was at hand and that he was the one that was going to usher that kingdom in. Rabbi, the disciples could have been thinking, Rabbi, wouldn't this be a perfect opportunity to launch your kingdom you are the king of Israel? For Jesus, it would have meant full acceptance and instant support from his people. It would have meant a very popular and a very powerful march to kingship. Why not take this opportunity? The crowd wanted him as king. And Jesus was Israel's true king. That wasn't the problem. Why not go with the flow and move on to victory? Because victory and the kingdom could not come in that way. That's why. Jesus will go on in the rest of chapter 6 in that long dialogue with the crowds of Jews in which He explains the breaking of the bread and says a number of things about the meaning of bread. He will explain to the crowd and to the twelve that He has been sent to the, by the Father to, to provide food for eternal life for his people. That's 6, verse 27. What food does he intend to give to the people? Well, he says it in verse 35: that food will be himself. Verse 35: I am the bread of life. And when the people question, what do you mean you're the bread of life? He answers verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, it's very alarming language to the crowds and he's speaking in a certain metaphor, but he's referring to his coming suffering and death. You have to believe in what I'm about to do. The crowds, they wanted a king and a kingdom that would achieve military victory in the short term over many enemies. But Jesus is about to tell them in the rest of chapter 6 that he is the king who will achieve one victory over all the enemies. But the way he's going to do that is through the torture, the suffering, and death of himself as the king. It's the most counterintuitive thing in the world. My kingdom will only come about, says Jesus, through my execution. And you can enter into my kingdom, the kingdom of God, and you can receive eternal life in that kingdom only through trusting my suffering and death. It was an impossible message to believe and Jesus knew that it was coming. How can... The kingdom of God come through that means through the death of the king. That's impossible. Think the people and the twelve. And that is why Jesus walks out on the sea in the middle of the storm. He's got to show the disciples something. It's a moment of very powerful revelation just to the twelve. The crowds are nowhere in sight now. John tells us it is dark. This doesn't happen in the daylight. You can imagine the disciples are feeling somewhat confused and unsure, probably frustrated. Why did Jesus separate themselves, Himself from them in such a drastic manner and leave them all alone in the dark? That couldn't have felt very good. They confessed Jesus as king, so why didn't he let the crowds make him king? Could they be wrong about Jesus? Is this rabbi from Nazareth really the Messiah king they thought he was? Because he's just turned down the kingship that the crowds were offering him. And it's then, alone as they were with their unsettling thoughts in the middle of the lake, it's then that they suddenly see what? Jesus walking to them on the sea in the storm. Now, the moment they lay eyes on Him, the disciples, we read, are filled with fear. We'll come back to that in a moment, but can you imagine how this whole episode would have struck the disciples somewhat later upon reflection. We know that they didn't understand so much of Jesus' earthly ministry while it was unfolding, but later on the Holy Spirit opened their hearts to understand, and they could look back and grasp its bigger meaning, its deeper meaning. And we are allowed to grasp it with them. For what did they see? They saw a mere man walking on water. What mere man can walk on water? On a storm. In a storm. Just hours earlier, Jesus had fed thousands of Israelites from bread, which He had produced out of nowhere, exactly like Yahweh the Lord had done for the Israelites in Moses' day. And now here they see Jesus walking upon the waves of the sea to help His people like it's no big deal. Just like the Lord had once parted the water in Moses' day to help His people. I mean, think about it. Is is walking on the water any less of a miracle than parting the water of the Red Sea? The water is rough. The waves are swelling. What would walking on water like that be like? I mean, if you paddle out on, on a lake, on a wakeboard, say, on a, on a windy day, you know how much movement there is on the waves. Now imagine, we, we don't have that ability, but imagine trying to walk on those waves in the dark. How could anybody walk over these roiling waves without losing their balance? The disciples are there in the boat, struggling hard, making hardly any headway against the fierce wind and waves. But there comes Jesus, strolling along. He's not running. He's not struggling. He's just walking along without any resistance from wind or water. Who is this man? Within this single day, he has shown that he has total control over bread and food and total control over the sea. Who can this man be but Yahweh, the Lord? Who else has such control over creation? This is Israel's eternal king. Every Israelite knew that the Lord as creator was not just Israel's king, he was certainly that, but he was also supreme king of the world. We sang about that from Psalm 89. Who in their mighty host, and that's a reference to the angels, compares with you, O Lord, in splendor, they all before your throne to you their homage render. So Yahweh is this king, the supreme king, And look from how He controls the waters, Psalm 89 again, you rule the swelling tides, the surging of the sea, and on the roaring waves you impose tranquility, quietness. So what is Jesus doing? What is He revealing when He walks out onto the water? He's saying to the twelve, Don't worry. I am king. I really am Israel's king, but I am more. I am king of all creation. I'm not just the man you see before me. Don't follow the crowds and think too little of me as if I'm just an earthly king, but have confidence that as surely as you see me controlling the waves and the wind and produce even the food you eat, know for certain that I am your king, for I am your God. That's who I am. Trust me. Jesus is preparing His disciples to believe in Him even when things get confusing for them and are hard to understand for them as they will shortly become as Jesus' ministry unfolds. There's, a, there's going to be a lot of hard things to grasp. Even chapter 6 will show that and other chapters as well. Jesus is preparing them for that. This walking on the water, this revelation that He is Yahweh is saying, I know what I'm doing. I am king and I have all the power to save you, but I will save you in my way. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. You wanted me maybe to take up with the crowd and become the king they wanted, but that's not the way. Trust me. Can you trust him too, brothers and sisters? One of the hardest times to trust is when you don't know what's happening or why. The less in control I feel, the harder I find it to be confident in the outcome. And that worries me. you ever have that? The less in control I feel, the harder it is to trust the disciples are out there rowing their oars as hard as they could but they're going nowhere fast and remember they are out there on the lake at the lord's command so they're just doing the lord's will By crossing the lake, they have zero control over the storm. They're not sure when they will make it across or if they can get to their intended destination. Why did our rabbi send us out into this lake at this time, into this storm? You and I might well be doing the Lord's will too, rowing our oars with all of our might. Parenting our children despite the challenges. Caring for a spouse or a parent whose frailty and old age is showing. Being a friend to someone in need. Striving to fight against a particular temptation that so attracts us. Shepherding people in our wards as the new office bearers will soon be doing along with the existing office bearers. All of these tasks, they are what the Lord calls us to do in, if we are given those situations. And we find it at times hard going, right? Like, is parenting always easy? Is being a friend to someone in need always easy? Is caring for your spouse Easy? It feels sometimes like we're against the wind, like our efforts don't amount to a whole lot, like maybe it's useless to continue row, row, rowing our boat. Then, brothers and sisters, when the the frustration sets in and and you can't see reason anymore and, and can't see progress anymore, see this. Through the eyes of our text, see this, see Jesus walking across the water to you. Walking across those waves, so unbothered by the wind, so untroubled by the waves. This Jesus of John 6 is your Jesus. He's your Lord and Savior who not only directs your way in life, But promises to prosper your way. So keep trusting him. You might not see much progress at a certain moment, but keep trusting and realize that you and I actually, we've never been in control. You can't control your kids, you know. You think you can when you're young parents. But soon you discover you can't control your kids, can't control your spouse, can't control your ward members, can't dictate the outcome for your family, can't dictate the outcome for your spouse, but the Lord Jesus Christ can. He is in control. He's Yahweh. He's always been in control. He always will be in control. So let go of the frustrations. Let go of the confusion and the anxiety and the fear and take comfort in His total care for you because He uses that great power to exercise great care for you and me. The Lord Jesus is a very watchful and tender Savior, knowing our needs. Mark tells us that Jesus had gone up the mountain to pray. Jesus many, many times went off to pray. And no doubt on this occasion, when the crowds were threatening to, to ruin His true mission, He felt the need to seek his father in prayer and I wonder brothers and sisters if that's a pattern in our lives the way it was in the Lord's life how do you how does it go with you does it occur to you does it occur to me to first pray when a problem arises or is our first thought how can I fix this I'm gonna fix this what's the solution I'm gonna find a solution We tend to fix first and pray later, if we pray at all. But Jesus prayed first and then let His Father guide Him to a solution. Ora, then labora. Prayer, then work. That's the way, beloved. But while Jesus was on the mountain speaking to His Father in prayer, He did not forget His disciples rowing out across the lake some three and a half miles away by now. In fact, Mark says something very remarkable. He says Jesus saw them making, uh, that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Jesus saw them. Three and a half miles away in the dark. Is that not another miracle here? And does it not show that our Lord Jesus truly does keep watch over us? He knows what we are going through. He has eyes to see through the dark, across the miles. And Jesus doesn't leave His disciples in their frustrating predicament, but as John tells us in verse 19, Jesus goes out to them. Though it is dark, with storm clouds overhead, and there's no moonlight or starlight in that kind of situation, somehow the disciples see Jesus coming to them on the water. That might be another miracle, that they could somehow see Him. Mark tells us they thought it was a ghost. How they figured it was a ghost, He doesn't say, but in any case, they were scared. And then Jesus says to them, verse 20 of our text, It is, I do not be afraid. The Lord's coming to them on the water was not meant to incite dread, but comfort. Set aside your fear. I am not a ghost or a phantom. I am Jesus, your Lord and Master. I am Jesus, your covenant God, Yahweh. In the the Greek, Jesus speaks four simple but profound words, and I just want to give them to you literally. The words are these, I am, fear not. I am, fear not. These words would have been familiar to the disciples and all the Jews who knew the writings of Moses. Remember that at the end of chapter 5, Jesus had said, that Moses had written about Him, and that kind of sets up all that is happening in chapter 6. This is… chapter 6 shows us by allusion how Moses wrote about Jesus, and those words that He speaks to the disciples, I am fear not, are words that the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Abraham on a certain occasion and to isaac and to jacob when he appeared to each of them he said either those words or something very similar fear not i am yahweh your god jesus is hooking into that we've seen that jesus is Yahweh, who gives people bread to eat. And now we're seeing the same thing on the sea as, as Israel's God reveals Himself. This is the Son of God revealing Himself to His new Israel. That's the 12 disciples. He does that by treading on the waves of the sea and saying to them, I am, fear not. Moses also wrote very specifically in Exodus 3, that the name of God, Yahweh, it means something. What does it mean? It means, I am. I am who I am. And what will Jesus go on to say in chapter 6, verse 35? I am the bread of life. He'll go on to actually make seven I am statements in this gospel. Jesus is 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 beginning to show his disciples his true identity as Yahweh King of Israel King of Kings and Lord of Lords so that those disciples will be willing to accept his teaching however unlikely and even distressing it is the teaching that I am has come to die for his people That was unimaginable to the Jews I am giving his life for Israel. That's why he walks in the water. I am who I am. I know what I'm doing. You can trust me. Brothers. This is a message for the three of you as well. As you take up your callings as elders and as deacon, the Lord has appointed you to these tasks. It doesn't come out of thin air. We've prayed for this from the beginning of this process right through to the end. It's the same Lord Jesus of our text who's called you to elder and deacon. He knows what he's doing, and he can be fully trusted. You can rely upon Him to help you serve. And then, when you visit your sheep, encourage them. Encourage them with the same gospel that your Savior is the same God who rescued Israel out of slavery, who brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground, who fed them bread in the wilderness, who later then came and died on the cross and rose to life. He can be fully trusted. Also, the the congregation needs to hear that from you. Brothers and sisters, the message comes to us. Fear not. For you and I are also God's covenant children. This This is part of Christ's total care for us. And when the Lord Jesus says this to His disciples, what happens to their fear? It melts away. Verse 21, Then they were glad to take Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Did you notice that? That's another miracle, isn't it? I think we're up to three or four in this short passage. Their fear turns to relief and happiness, And then instantly the boat reaches the shore. Instantly their night of struggle was over. Jesus is showing them. He's reminding them. He's impressing it upon them. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He knows what He's doing and He knows how to do it. He turns our dread into delight, our painful labor into joyful success. So brothers and sisters, trust Him who is at work in your life. He is the bread maker. He's the water walker. The fear quencher, the triumph giver. He is the great I am. The Lord Jesus is taking us in the many circumstances of life, the difficult and the confusing. He's guiding us from here to there, that ultimate destiny, this life to the next life. And while we are en route with all those varying and difficult circumstances, let us have full confidence and comfort that your Lord and Savior guides you, watches over you, is with you, and tends to your every need he says to you and to me i am fear not amen